the old pilot's plane tales, the A300. This was a story I wrote for the Plane Talking UK podcast's 300th show, but it's a great tale and one I thought worth repeating. The A300 was Airbus's very first aircraft and it took to the air in 1972. It has the distinction of being the world's first twin-engined wide-body airliner as well as the world's first ETOPS airliner. It was a very successful design that often goes unnoticed amongst the plethora of high-profile airliners out there. But there was one event that put it into the history books. Sadly, it's rarely remembered, so let me tell you about it. In 2003, a US-led coalition of forces invaded Iraq. The attack lasted just over a month, after which President George W. Bush declared mission accomplished. But for some, that declaration was a little premature, since the conflict was about to enter another phase. It would become a guerrilla war, which continued to fester well into the next decade. The Fedayeen Saddam was not part of Iraq's regular armed forces, but rather it operated as a paramilitary unit of irregulars. As a result of this, the Fedayeen reported directly to the presidential palace rather than through the military chain of command. Whereas the Iraqi army and the Republican Guard quickly collapsed, Fedayeen forces put up stiff resistance to the coalition invasion. They entrenched themselves in the cities and launched guerrilla-style attacks on supply convoys. The fall of Baghdad effectively ended their existence as an organized paramilitary, but they would continue well after. Some of its members died during the war, but a large number survived and were willing to carry on the fight even after the fall of Saddam Hussein from power. It's now November, some months after the invasion, and the French reporter Claudine Vernier-Palliez, writing for the sensationalist Paris Match news magazine, has made contact with a Fedayeen unit near Baghdad and somehow earned their trust. The magazine claims that she was there to investigate why these rebels continued to fight against the US forces in Iraq but what she witnesses is something truly shocking. Three cars are at their disposal, she writes. They start off in a column. We don't know where they're taking us. They stop in a cloud of dust some kilometres further on to recover a ground-to-air missile, SAM-7, wrapped in a white fabric and hidden in a thicket at the edge of a dirt track. We now know that the weapon was actually a Russian Strela III known to NATO as an SA-14 Gremlin. It's an all-aspect, man-portable, shoulder-fired air defence missile and a much-improved version of the earlier SA-7 Grail. It has a nitrogen-cooled lead sulphide, infrared homing seeker head more sensitive and capable than its predecessor. About one and a half metres long, it can comfortably fit in a golf bag and would make an impressive driver. 
When fired, it can accelerate to over 900 miles an hour. That's around Mach 1.75, climbed to an altitude of over 7,500 feet and is armed with a blast fragmentation warhead that weighs over a kilo. That's about 2.2 pounds. The missile has a proximity and contact fuse, which detonates the warhead when it comes close to or strikes its target. When ignited, the warhead explodes, creating damage in two ways. The shock wave generated causes targets with large volume to explode from the internal pressure changes. Approximately 30% of the energy released by the explosive is used to break up the casing, and impart kinetic energy to the fragments. The flying debris expands into a ball of shrapnel, which can slice through the thin skin of an aircraft like the cut of a thousand knives. At Baghdad Airport, an Airbus A300 registration Oscar Oscar Delta Lima Lima was being operated by the Belgium company European Air Transport on behalf of DHL, and was starting a scheduled flight to Bahrain. The aircraft was far from new. It began life with Malaysia Airlines in 1975, and was then taken on by Carnival in 95, part of the Cruise Lines Company, before joining EAT as a cargo carrier. It was only holding about seven tons of cargo, having delivered mail and other essentials to American troops based in Baghdad. There were only the crew on board. Two Belgian pilots, Captain Eric Gionotti and First Officer Steve Mickelson, plus a British flight engineer, Mario Raphael, who hailed from Scotland. The captain was 38, and had a good amount of experience with over 3,000 hours, about half on the A300. The crew prepared their aircraft and briefed the departure, which included a special take-off procedure to reduce the time they would spend on the ground and during the initial climb when they would be exposed to any threats. They were going to take off without any flaps, only using the slats, with maximum thrust, toga, and at the speed which would give them the best angle of climb, 215 knots. The Australian air traffic personnel working at Baghdad cleared the aircraft for takeoff, and soon it was approaching 8,000 feet on its way to 10,000 feet, where it should be safe from attack. The French journalist continued her story. The head of the commandos tells us that one day prior he had spotted a DHL airbus which was flying at low level. I've never, we've never fire on the civilian aircraft, but at that time I did not know what DHL was doing. Afterwards, when a friend of mine explained that these aircraft transported GI's mail, I regretted a little my intentions. That would mean depriving the soldiers of the letters from their mothers and wives, but the next time I fire. The sun rises and draws red shades upon the men, who have just begun to take up their weapons and prepare for the operation. A peasant passes, his shovel on his back. He understands what is underway and simply says, God blesses you and supports your action. 
before moving away quietly towards his field of tomatoes. Suddenly, the leader pricks up his ears and scans the sky, leaps up and shouts, A plane! You there! At the ready! This time you'll have to fire! The nitrogen bottle in the launcher's body has cooled the infrared seeker as the A-300 climbs. Eventually it becomes operational and acquires the heat source, the General Electric CF-6 engines. It's relatively simple to operate. All the user has to do is visually acquire the target, activate the automatic target lock, and launch the missile by pulling a trigger. The seeker head howls, the head of the commando screams, Fire! The starting booster runs for about half a second and the missile leaps away from the launcher. Then the propellant charge takes over and it spirals upwards in a stabilising spin as it rockets towards the A300. A second missile is fired and at 9.18 in the morning the first missile hits the target's left wing. The second misses, but regardless, the leader jumps for joy like a child and lifts up his hands to the sky. Allahu Akbar! Allahu Akbar! Passing 8,000 feet on the climb-out, Captain Ginotti was nearly safe. The missile had a theoretical maximum engagement altitude of 7,500 feet, but belting upwards at nearly 1,500 feet a second, it has overtaken the aircraft. Passing the A300's left wingtip, the warhead explodes. The shrapnel from the fragmenting cover spreads out and slices through the outer portion of the wing's trailing edge, cutting into fuel tanks, pipes and electrical connections. Precious fluid sprays through broken hydraulic lines at 3,000 psi, and aviation fuel starts to gush, and then the shockwave from the blast hits the aircraft. The aircraft shakes, and almost immediately, Mario, the engineer, spots the pressure in two of the hydraulic systems falling. He announces a double hydraulic system failure, as the green, the primary system, and the yellow circuits empty their fluid through the ruptured lines. A double hydraulic system failure is about as serious as it gets since it leaves the aircraft with only one system left, and should that fail, then none of the primary flight controls will operate. The aircraft would be as controllable as a leaf falling from a tree. Twenty seconds later, Captain Ginotti feels the flight control stiffen as the third and final hydraulic system, the lifeblood of the Airbus, fails. As if that were not serious enough, aviation fuel from the hold fuel tank has ignited and now his aircraft is on fire with flames streaming from his shattered left wing. With no hydraulics, his ailerons, rudder and elevators are floating, unpowered. He's unable to move them. His trimmable horizontal stabilator and spoilers are frozen, along with his flaps and slats, which are retracted. 
The aircraft was like a piece of paper in the air, Mario the flight engineer explained. We went through a series of steep banks and dives. You couldn't leave your seat. The crew assessed their situation whilst being thrown against their harnesses. They had no flight controls. Part of their left wing was missing and more coming away as the fire took hold. And they were losing fuel at an alarming rate. About the only things left working were the two engines. In the history of civil aviation, only two aircraft have been in a similar situation. The Sioux City DC-10 and a JAL 747. Both aircraft became uncontrollable after all their hydraulic systems failed. Despite a heroic effort by Captain Al Haynes and his crew, the DC-10 crashed at Sioux City Airport, killing 112. After a terrifying 44 minutes of uncontrolled flight, the JAL 747 impacted the side of a mountain, killing an appalling 520 passengers and crew. The odds for the Airbus crew were not good, but as Mario Raphael said, the rules have gone out of the window. Situations like this are unique every time. You cannot train for them. You cannot write a checklist for them. During the learning process, their airspeed lurches wildly between 180 and 300 knots. The crew have since listened to the cockpit voice recorder tape and say they're quite surprised at how calm they all sound. Mario commented, All you can do is apply common sense and stay calm. We were the right combination of crew. The only control left to the pilots was the natural stability of the aircraft, and the engines. Being mounted in pods under the wing and below the centre of gravity, an increase in thrust would cause the aircraft to pitch up a little. The opposite would occur should the power be reduced. However, this isn't as simple as it sounds. Although the crew could make general changes to the attitude of the aircraft without fine control, it would naturally oscillate up and down in a fugoid. To try to turn the aircraft, they needed to use asymmetric power, increasing the thrust on one engine and not the other, which would cause the aircraft to yaw. This yawing action would increase the lift on the advancing wing and decrease it on the retreating wing, which would then cause the aircraft to roll, allowing them to crudely turn. Again, this wasn't as easy as it might appear, since they were missing a portion of the left wing, and with a massive fuel leak, the weight in that wing was reducing all the time, making the aircraft want to continually turn to the right. It takes some time to establish how to control their aircraft, and then the crew tried to steer in a big loop back towards Baghdad airfield, all the while their wing was burning with 50 feet of flame streaming back from the fuel tank, which might explode at any moment. It becomes obvious that they can't get their speed low enough to land and still keep control of the aircraft, so Raphael uses the emergency system to lower the landing gear, which, despite being well above the maximum speed, works perfectly. The aircraft had been trimmed to 215 knots when the stabilator froze, and with the speed back in that regime, it becomes easier to control. But despite this, 
Captain Ginotti has trouble lining up for an approach and they turn away to reposition. Raphael is working hard to ensure that, despite the leak, fuel is continuously fed to the left engine, but not to the fire. Should he make a mistake and accidentally cut fuel to the engine, all would be lost. They get a decent distance from the runway and then have a second go from a long straight-in approach. It's looking better, and despite 20 knots of turbulent wind from 290 degrees, giving them an uncomfortable crosswind, they're lined up to land on runway 33 left. Without flaps or slats, they're fast, around 210 knots, and Ginotti knows that at that speed... Without spoilers to keep them down, a bounce on touchdown could be fatal. With just the thrust levers, they fly the aircraft down to the flare. They're coping with the fugoid, the asymmetry in weight, and the crosswind well. At about 400 feet, though, they meet the rough air that is common around hot airfields, and the wing dips. The aircraft starts to veer off course. Having battled the crippled Airbus for 25 minutes, Ginotti needs one more effort, and he adds power and writes it again, and they touch down as gently as a feather. But with no spoilers, brakes, rudder, or steering, they can't keep on the runway and slide off the side. Engaging full thrust reverse, they plough across the sand and disappear into a huge cloud of red dust kicked up by the reversers. In the cockpit, they're bouncing along the rough ground. Several tyres fail and one jolt reaches seven and a half Gs. Watchers assume the worst. But as the dust settles, they see that the aircraft is intact and stopped a mere 3,300 feet after landing. An almost unbelievable story of a remarkable aircraft and crew. Captain Eric Genotti, First Officer Steve Mickelson, and Flight Engineer Mario Raphael were rightly honoured and given awards from around the globe. These included the Hugh Gordon Burge Memorial Award from the Guild of Air Pilots given to flight crew whose outstanding behaviour and action contributed to the saving of their aircraft and only awarded for events of significant merit, and the Flight Safety Foundation's Professionalism Award in Flight Safety, which was presented to the crew members for their extraordinary piloting skills in flying their aircraft. And what of their amazing A300? Well, it was promptly repaired and put up for sale. Sadly, there were no takers, and it remains at Baghdad, a sad memorial to a brilliant crew. If you enjoyed this story, then why not leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or your podcatcher of choice? Plain Tales is a featured segment of the Airline Pilot Guy show. You can find us and all the other Plain Tales 
at airlinepilotguy.com.